Welcome to Voices of Church Past. I am your host, Rob Maher. Today we'll be looking at one of Luther's sermons given on the fifth Sunday in Lent, remarking on John chapter 8, verses 46 through 59, Christ's defense against his enemies. The gospel teaches how hardened persons become the more furious, the more one teaches them and lovingly stirs them to their duty. For Christ asked them here in a very loving way for a reason why they still disbelieve, since they can find fault neither with his life nor with his teaching. His life is blameless, for he defies them and says, Which of you convicteth me of sin? His teaching also is blameless, for he adds, If I say truth, why do you not believe me? Thus Christ lives as he teaches, and every preacher should prove that he possesses both. First, a blameless life by which he can defy his enemies, and no one may have occasion to slander his teachings. Secondly, that he possesses the pure doctrine so that he may not mislead those who follow him, and thus he will be right and firm on both sides, with his good life against his enemies who look much more at his life than at his doctrine, and despise the doctrine for the sake of the life, with his doctrine among his friends who have much more respect for his doctrine than for the kind of life he leads, and will bear with his life for the sake of his teaching." For if it indeed true that no one lives so perfect a life as to be without sin before God, therefore it is sufficient that he be blameless in the eyes of the people. But his doctrine must be so good and pure as to stand not only before man, but also before God. Therefore every pious pastor may well ask, Who among you can find fault with my life? Among you, I say, who are men? But before God, I am a sinner." Thus Moses also boasts in Numbers sixteen fifteen they took nothing from the people and did them no injustice. Samuel did likewise. Also Jeremiah, Hezekiah, who rightly boasted their blameless life before the people in order to stop the mouths of blasphemers. But Christ does not speak thus of his doctrine. He says not, Who among you can find fault with my doctrine? But if I tell you the truth... For one must be assured that his doctrine is right before God, and that it is the truth, accordingly care how it is judged by the people. Hence the Jews have no ground for their unbelief, and they are not children of God. Therefore he passes judgment upon them and says, He that is of God heareth the words of God. For this cause ye hear them not, because ye are not God. That cannot mean anything else than that you are of the devil." The Jews could not stand this, for they wished to be God's children and people. Therefore, they are now raging and slander both Christ's life and his doctrine. His doctrine in that they say, Thou hast a devil, and as thou speakest, moved by the devil, and thy doctrine is his lie. They slander his life in that they say, Thou art a Samaritan, which sounds among the Jews worse than any other crime. In this way, Christ teaches us here the fate that awaits us Christians in his word. Both our life and our doctrine must be condemned and reviled, and that by the foremost, wisest, and greatest earth, thus one knows the corrupt tree by its fruits, as they, under the pretense of being good, are so bitter, angry, impatient, cruel, and mad as to condemn and pass sentence, when one touches them at their tender spot and rejects their ideas and ways. What does Christ do here? His life... 
He abandons to shame and dishonor, is silent, and suffers them to call him a Samaritan, while he takes pains to defend his doctrine. For the doctrine is not ours, but God's, and God dare not suffer in the least. Here patience is at an end, but I should stake all that I have and suffer, all that they do, in order that the honor of God and his word may not be injured. For if I perish, no great harm is done. But if I let God's word perish, I remain silent. Then I do harm to God and the whole world, although I can not now close their mouth nor prevent their wickedness. I shall nevertheless not keep silent nor act as if they are right, as I do about my good life, so that they retain their right. Although they do me injustice at the time, yet it remains right before God. Further, Christ excuses himself and says, I have not a demon. That is, my doctrine is not of the devil's lies, but I honor my father. That is, I preach in my doctrine the grace of God, through which he is to be praised, loved, and honored by believers. For the evangelical office of the ministry is nothing but glorifying God. Psalms 19.2 The heavens declare the glory of God, etc. But you dishonor me. That is, you call me the devil's liar, who reviles and dishonors God. Why does he not say, I honor my father, and ye dishonor him, but says, ye dishonor me? It implies he proves by this that the fathers and his honor are alike and the same, as he and the father are one God. Yet along with this, he also wishes to teach that if the office of the ministry, which God honors, is to be duly praised, that it must suffer disgrace. In like manner, we will also do to princes and priests when they attack our manner of life. We should suffer it, show love for hatred, good for evil. And when they attack our doctrine, God's honor is attacked. Then love and patience should cease, and we should not keep silent. But also say, I honor my father, you dishonor me, yet I do not inquire whether you dishonor me, for I do not seek my own honor. But nevertheless, be on your guard, for there is one who seeks it and judges, that is, the Father who will require it of you, and judge you, and never let you go unpunished. He seeks not only his honor, but also mine, because I seek his honor, as he says in First Samuel 2.30. Them that honor me, I will honor, and it is our consolation that we are happy, although the whole world reviles and dishonors us. We are assured that God will advance our honor, and therefore will punish, judge, and revenge. If one can only believe it and persevere, he will surely come. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my word, he shall never see death. By these words, he spoils it entirely in that he does not only defend his doctrine as right and good, which they attribute to the devil, but also ascribes with virtue to his teaching that it becomes a powerful emperor over Satan, death and sin, to give and sustain eternal life. Behold here how divine wisdom and human reason conflict with one another. How can a human being grasp the thought that a corporal and an oral word should redeem forever from death? But let blindness run its course. We shall consider this beautiful saying. Christ is speaking here not of the word of the law, but of the gospel, which is a discourse about Christ, who died for our sins, etc. 
For God did not wish to impart Christ to the world in any other way. He had to embody him in the word and thus distribute him and present him to everybody. Otherwise, Christ would have existed for himself alone and remained unknown to us. He would have thus died for himself. But since the word places before us Christ, and it thus places before us before him who has triumphed over death, sin, and Satan, therefore he who grasps and retains Christ has also thus eternal deliverance from death. Consequently, it is a word of life. It is true that whoever keeps the word shall never see death. And from this we may well understand what Christ meant by the word keep. It does not refer to such keeping as one keeps the law by good works. For this word of Christ must be kept in the heart by faith, and not with fist or by good works, as the Jews in this case understand it. They fearfully rage against Christ and Abraham, and the prophets are dead. They know nothing of what it is to keep, to die, and to, or to live. It is not called to keep in vain, for there is a conflict in battle when sin bites. Death presents, and hell faces us. Then we are to be in earnest in holding firmly to the word, and let nothing separate us from it. Thus now, see now how Christ answers the Jews and praises his own teachings. You say my word is of the devil and wish to sink it to the bottom of perdition. On the contrary, I say to you that it has divine power in it. And I exalt it higher than the heaven of heavens and above all creatures. How does it then come to pass that man does not see nor taste death? Yet Abraham and all the prophets are dead, who notwithstanding had the word of God, as the Jews say. Here we must give attention to the words of Christ, who makes the distinction that death is a different thing than to see or taste death. We all must face death and die. But a Christian neither tastes it nor sees it. That is, he doesn't feel it. He is not terrified before it. And he enters death calmly and quietly as though falling asleep. Yet he does not die. But a godless person feels and experiences death and is terrified before it forever. Thus to taste death may well be called the power and reign or the bitterness of death. Yea, it is the eternal death and hell. The word of God makes this difference. A Christian has that word. It clings firmly to it in death. Therefore, he does not see death, but his eyes are filled with the life and the Christ and that word. Therefore, he never feels death. But the godless possess not that word. Therefore, they see no life, but only death. And they must also feel death, and that, that, that is then the bitter and eternal death. Now, Christ means here that whoever clings to his word will in the midst of death neither feel nor see death. As he also says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That is, he will not experience real death. Here we see now what a glorious estate it is to be a Christian who is already released from death forever and can never die. Whereas death or dying seems outwardly indeed like dying of the godless, but inwardly there is a difference as great as between heaven and earth. For the Christian sleeps in death and in that way enters into life. But the godless departs from life and experiences death forever. Thus we may see how some tremble. Doubt and despair become senseless and raging in the midst of the perils of death. Hence, death is also called in the scriptures a sleep. 
For just as he who falls asleep does not know how it happens, he greets the morning when he wakes, so shall we suddenly arise on the last day and never know how we enter to pass through death. Let us take another example. When Israel marched out of Egypt and came to the Red Sea, they were free and experienced no death but only life. However, when King Pharaoh arrived behind them with all of his forces, they then stood in the midst of death. Then no life was in sight, for before them was the sea, through which they could not pass. But behind them King Pharaoh, on both sides of them high mountains. On all sides they were seized and closed by death. So they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness. So completely and wholly did they despair of life. Just then Moses came and brought them God's word that comforted them in the midst of death and preserved them alive when he said in verse 13, Fear not, stand still, see the salvation of Jehovah for which we will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. They clung to this word and held out until victory came. Through it, life appeared in the presence of death because they believed the word that it would come to pass. Relying upon it, they marched into the midst of the Red Sea, which stood on both sides of them like two walls. Then it came to pass that nothing but life and safety were in the sea, where before there was only death and danger. For they would never become so bold as to go into the sea had it divided a hundred times if God's word had not been. Which comforted them and promised life. Thus man triumphs over death through the word of life. If he cleaves to it and believes and marches into death with it. Likewise, Christ also says here in replying to the Jews that Abraham and the prophets still live. They never died, but have life in the midst of death. They, however, only lie and sleep in death. Abraham says, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Thus the prophets also saw it. Where and when did Abraham see it? Not with his bodily eyes, as the Jews interpret it, but with the sight of faith in the heart. That is, he recognized Christ when he was told in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Then he saw and understood that Christ, born of his seed, through a pure virgin, so as not to be cursed with Adam's children, but to remain blessed, should suffer for the whole world, cause this to be preached, and thus overwhelm the whole world with blessing. This is the day of Christ, the dispensation of the gospel, that is the light of this day, which radiates from Christ as from the Son of Righteousness, and shines and enlightens the whole world. This is a spiritual day, yet it arose at the time Christ was on the earth in the flesh, a day like Abraham saw. But the Jews understood nothing about such a day because of their carnal minds. Hence they reviled Christ as a liar. Therefore Christ proceeds further and gives ground and reason why it is just his word and not the word of anyone else that gives life. It says it is because he was before Abraham. In other words, because he was the one true God. For if the person who offered himself as a sacrifice for us were not God, it would not help or avail anything, even if he were born of the Virgin Mary and suffered a thousand deaths. But the fact that the seed of Abraham, who gave himself up for us, is also true God, secures blessing and victory for all sinners. Therefore, Christ speaks not of his human nature that they saw and experienced, 
they could easily see he was not yet 50 years of age and did not live before Abraham, but with that nature by which he existed long before the time of Abraham, by which he existed also before all creatures and before the whole world, just as he was man according to his spiritual nature before Abraham, that is, in his word and the knowledge of faith, was he in the saints. For they all knew and believed that Christ, as God and man, should suffer for us, as is written in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yea, and forever. Yet now he is speaking here especially of his divine nature. But here reason is terribly offended and becomes mad and furious because God should become man. This reason cannot harmonize and understand. And this is the article of faith in which the Jews still in our day cannot reconcile themselves. Hence they cannot cease their throwing stones and their blasphemy. But Christ also continues, on the other hand, to hide himself from them and go out of their temple so that they cannot see nor find him in the scriptures in which they search daily. Again, this narrative is not a little terror to all who are so foolhardy about the scriptures and never approach them with a humble spirit. For even in our day, it happens that many read and study in the scriptures, yet they cannot find Christ. He is hid and has gone out of the temple. And how many there are who say with their mouth that God has become man, yet they are without the Spirit in their hearts, who, whenever tested, prove that they were never in real earnest. This is sufficient on this subject. And that, my friends, was Martin Luther's sermon given on the fifth Sunday of Lent. He was remarking on Luke chapter 8. Verses 46 through 59. Until we see each other again, I, I pray that God would keep you steadfast in the one true faith, give it unto the saints, that he persevere you to the end, so that one day, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can hold hands in heaven before Christ, free from sin, free from death, in perfect unity, and in a, and a, and perfect concord, of the one true faith. We can all praise our Lord and Savior who died for our sins and did all perfectly to save us in every way and every form. Till then, brothers, sisters, and those who are not in Christ, God bless you.